Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, well, uh, of course I'm good because I've already had uh, my requisite um, a mug and a half of uh, the nectar of the gods. Uh, you know why I'm good? Why is that? Because nobody's taken any of my stuff lately. Well, you know, hey, um, I, I, I'm right there with you. And and, and uh, listeners, today our episode is is one that uh, Nia and I have discussed uh, a number of times <laughs> off recording. Um, and, and, and the topic is asset forfeiture asset forfeiture now we are it's actually gonna we're gonna have a two-part episode yeah. about asset forfeiture because augie's gonna lay out the case for why for the for side of it right why there is asset forfeiture and what the sort of positives are of that and then when next we meet we are going to discuss this sort of critique downside Yes. Which, of course, will probably star mostly me because I have lots of feelings <laughs> um, about. But but basically, what's okay? So asset just means a thing you own. Yes, a thing could, that is yours. It could be right? a, so your bicycle is an asset, your car is an asset, your house is an asset. If you own it, not if you rent. Yes. Um, your coffee. You in your case, your precious coffee mug is an asset. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In fact, let's use your your coffee mug as an example. Yes. Okay. Let's just say, for instance, the uh, government. Okay. Well, Any, let's say a- that your asset that you value your your coffee mug because it was given to you by Thomas Jefferson. It was handed yes. down through the generations. Yes. Okay. And it's an especially a special antique coffee mug thing that's and very it, important to you, and it holds and nurtures the coffee that I put in it every single day, right? right? It has sentimental, it has practical. Okay, this is an important asset. And let's just say the government believes that I'm using this mug for illegal activity, right? Okay. Okay. So so in this instance, if you were drinking coffee that was made out of a contraband substance. Substance, okay. Then the yeah. coffee mug becomes part of the problem. Yes. Because you were using it to transport the yes contraband substance, hence why cars could be considered seizable assets. Well, assets, you know, or, or homes, homes, if it's are, where you kept the coffee that was feet. contraband. Or if you had a boat and that's how you shipped the illegal contraband, okay? Okay. Or let's say I bought this cherished, priceless coffee mug. Okay, so okay? it wasn't handed down to you. It was wasn't purchased. It, it was purchased. At the Lamborghini I, store. <laughs> that, but I purchased it because I used the proceeds of the illegal coffee I, trade. Oh, yeah. I see. Okay. Yes. Okay. So let's say that there's an embargo on coffee from Cuba. And you're drinking Cuban coffee in your mug. Mug, yes. Your mug is now part of the problem. Yeah, it's part of the criminal transaction. 
Okay. Or if you sold Cuban coffee and <laughs> bought your mug, mug with your the proceeds, mug is part of okay. Yeah. So okay. so you wouldn't necessarily let's go to a different example, Lamborghini. You would if if you bought a Lamborghini with with money that you had gotten through criminal activity, even though the Lamborghini is innocent of any criminal activity on its own, the fact you haven't that done anything criminal in, in it, that's right. But it's part the, of the proceeds of that. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Okay. So when so, they say asset, they mean pretty much anything. Yes. Either tied to to criminal activity. Okay. All right. So. In, Is and that I'm only I'm going to make some distinctions here. So, okay. asset forfeiture, um, or um, uh, the more common uh, 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 verb is, or I guess would be noun, asset seizure, is where the government takes assets. Okay, um, and there are two separate processes for this. Right, one okay. type is a criminal justice obligation. So let's just say, for instance, um, uh, Nia, um, you commit a crime, and <clears throat> as part of your punishment, you have to give back the money you made with the criminal <clears throat> the criminal enterprise. So that's right? restitution. I have to make restitution, restitution in some way. Yeah. So I'll give uh, the classic example here is Bernie Madoff, right? Uh, for listeners who don't know who I'm referencing, Bernie Madoff was a financial consultant advisor who created such an elaborate Ponzi scheme that by the time the government prosecuted him, okay, he had swindled hundreds of millions of dollars from his victims. Right. When he was convicted, okay, he was forced to go ahead and give back the proceeds, right? Now, some of these he proceeds. He probably spent them on stuff. He had spent them on stuff, right? Um, he w I said millions, hundreds of millions. It was actually billions, okay? That was how elaborate the Ponzi scheme was, right? So he was ordered to forfeit asset forfeiture, over $170 billion. But the prosecution was able to demonstrate to a judge that he had reallocated some of his assets to family members. <laughs> right. He put it in his wife's names and his kids' names. Kids' names. So, for instance, his wife, Ruth, though she wasn't charged because... Mr. Madoff was actually very close, you know, tight-lipped about his Ponzi scheme. And, of course, she kind of sort of have to be if you want to make a Ponzi scheme work, right? right? But she agreed to forfeit over $80 million in assets. Okay? So let me just take this to its its conclusion there. So let us say that you have you have engaged in the selling of Cuban coffee, which we have agreed is currently illegal even though it's not but just bear with us no but at one way but but, 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 but at one point it was right i mean before embargo right yeah but until the obama administration in in, in nia it's funny you mentioned cuban coffee i love cuban <laughs> roast coffee right 
the day that embargo was lifted, I was searching the internet and I was because I just absolutely love the taste of Cuban coffee, right? So prior to the Obama administration, let's say during the Bush two administration, you had been sneaking Cuban coffee in your coffee mug. They take your coffee mug as part of this forfeiture. Yes. Right. As part of the seizure. And then the government sells that property and uses the money to pay people back. Yes. Or no. Well, they could. Right. Okay. So again, there's two types of asset forfeiture. One's related to criminal justice. You get convicted of a crime, okay? And it's usually applied to things like terrorist activities, drug-related crimes, um, and um, uh, it, it basically it comes in the form of a punishment, right? Um, right. You're going to get to keep the cool stuff that your ill-gotten gains got you. That's right. It's it, You know, in, in the case of Bernie Madoff, okay, he vo- violated a number of, of financial crime statutes, right? And therefore, okay, he didn't get to keep the proceeds of his criminal activities that he was found guilty of, okay? He had to give that money back, right? Okay. He, he had to give that money back, right? The other type is known as civil forfeiture, right? And with civil forfeiture, the government doesn't sue the person, they sue the asset, okay? So basically... So the government would sue your coffee cup. Not me. And then they say to me, if you want your coffee mug back, okay, you have to go to court and show that the mug was not an instrumentality of a criminal activity. So you have to prove the mug's innocence. It's not assumed. That's right. Unlike the rest of our criminal justice theoretical. Yes, theoretically, okay, you're innocent until proven guilty. But the mug is guilty until you prove that it's innocent. That's right. Okay. Okay. So let's just say, for instance, again, we're talking about the importing of of a prohibited coffee, right? right? Now, let's say I'm getting it from Cuba before the embargo was lifted, and I'm using boats that I own. At least that's the theory. Right. Right. And the government wants me to stop doing this. So, but they, but they're not entirely sure I had, they have enough evidence to prosecute me. What they might do is go into federal civil court and make a claim on my boat. Oh, so they're prosecuting the boat. They're prosecuting the boat. Uh, We can't prove that Augie was driving the boat, but we can prove that the boat was engaged in transportation of this illegal substance. substance, That's right. Okay. Okay. And this is where many people whose assets are used by others. Okay. Hey, Augie, can I borrow your boat? (laughs) Sure. What are you going to do, Nia? I'm just going to take a quick trip to Cuba. I'll be back in a couple of days. Right. All right. All okay. Right, go ahead. And then two weeks later, I get a notification, okay, via registered mail, okay, from a federal court saying, "My boat's um, been seized. Your boat yeah, has been seized. My because... boat is my boat has been seized, and that if I want to go ahead and make a claim for my my boat, I have to respond, okay, within thirty five days. Okay. 
And and isn't there a defense that you can say? But I didn't. Ha- I had no idea Nia was going to be using my boat to do an illegal thing. Yes. Otherwise, I wouldn't have lent it to her. It's called the innocent owner defense, right? Okay. So if you can prove that, if you can prove that you, in good faith, lent me something that you had no idea I was going to slip off to Cuba and buy and get Cuban coffee in it, then you might be able to get your asset back. Yes. But this is tricky on the government's part because because the government has already seized your property. If you make the innocent owner defense, then the government gets to depose you. So let's just say, and I'm going to let's extend out the hypothetical. Let's say I hire you to captain my boat because I don't want to be anywhere near the illegal coffee that I'm importing from Cuba, right? Right. And the Coast Guard goes ahead and takes the boat that you're captain, cap, you know, you're the captain of, right? But it's my boat, and that boat's worth millions of dollars. If I make a claim for that boat saying I had no knowledge that Nia was actually using it to import illegal illegal Cuban coffee, and I claim the innocent owner defense, at that point, under oath, I have to give a deposition where the government then gets to explore, okay. Well, then what were you doing on the weekend of yes. blah, blah, and blah, blah, you didn't know that that was happening? Was happening. And, you know, uh, do you have other boats that are used by other friends? And, oh, yeah, by the way, do you know that those boats were bringing in you know, prohibited coffee and illegal drugs, and some of them had guns, et cetera, et cetera. And this is where it gets tricky because then the government gets to depose you Mm. under oath, right? Right. So again, okay, um, uh, so before we start getting to – before we start – How quickly is the turnaround on that? Okay, so – with the federal government's uh, civil forfeiture program, okay, um, let's say the government uh, uh, takes the boat, right? You then have 35 days um, from the point you're notified that the government has seized your asset to file a claim. <laughs> to hire a lawyer. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> You file the claim with the federal agency, and by the way, most of the time it's either with the Drug Enforcement Agency or the FBI, right? Oh, then the nature of the crimes. Crimes, that's right. The U.S. attorney then has three months, 90 days to review your claim and file a civil complaint in a U.S. district court. Then you have another thir- – you then, as the owner, have 35 days to file the judicial claim in court, and within three weeks, 21 days of you filing that claim, okay, you mu- uh, the owner must file an answer denying allegations of the complaint. So typically – so if you add this up, you got 35 days plus 90, that's 125, plus another 35, so that makes it 160. And then 21 days. So that's 181 days. So roughly half a year. Half a year. 
right? Now, you're going to need a lawyer and for that's this. that's before the trial. The actual trial. Before the actual trial. That's the going backing and forthing while everybody's yes. filing motions and doing all sorts you know, of things. That's right. Okay. But if your boat is worth millions and you didn't know I was doing that, it's worth it. That's right. It's worth it to do that. Yes. I would be willing to bet, though, that most people are like, ah, screw it, because they know they were involved in some way or they know that they can't withstand a deposition. Yes. For whatever reason. Yeah. And that's the tricky part, right? Because a good lawyer will go ahead and say, you know, I know, Mr. Augenbaugh, this boat is worth millions. However, if you file this claim at some point in time, the federal government gets to depose you in court, all right? And in depositions, okay, lawyers get to ask all kinds of questions, okay? Right. Much less restrictive than in courts. Yeah, a, a criminal trials, trial. Yeah, a criminal trials. trial. Uh, that's right. right, okay? Now, in civil cases, not only federal, federal, uh, federal civil forfeiture, but in almost all the states, and by the way, states also have asset forfeiture programs. I was going to ask you, so is this just a federal thing? Oh, so no, 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 no. It's no. also a state thing. Okay. <laughs> and I will explain why all levels of government, okay, like <laughs> the asset forfeiture, right? We'll probably get that get to it in the next uh, uh, episode, right? In a civil case, not a criminal case, a civil case, okay, the standard of evidence to demonstrate that your asset can be seized by the government, okay, Nia, you actually are probably aware of the standard of evidence. Do you know? Do, do you know the standard of evidence? Is it preponderance? Preponderance of the evidence, and, and listeners, the so reason why the reason why the reason why they I said don't have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. They just have to do pro, by the preponderance of the evidence, meaning it's more likely than not. Not yes. Okay, this Which is, is a, a very different standard. Yes, this is an easier standard. Right. Okay, for the uh, government to meet. That's to right. Keep your stuff. <laughs> to keep your stuff, right? To keep your stuff. Right? The, the thumb is on the scale for the government on this particular part. That's right. Okay. Um, and you don't, the owner of the asset does not even have to be judged guilty of a crime. For it the is asset to be judged to be guilty of a guilty, crime. That's right. Because remember, they're suing the asset, asset the person. person. That's right. Okay. Whereas in a criminal court case, you are not suing the asset, you are suing an individual. individual. And when the asset gets taken in a criminal case, it's usually, okay, a form of punishment because you've been found guilty. So assets in criminal cases are often seized after yes. the trial, whereas assets in, in civil cases are seized before the trial because they are the they are the defendant, if you will. Yes, yes. Okay. Okay, yeah. Okay, right. so that makes that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So civil cases then would be much easier to win. Oh, sure. 
Yes. So okay. I would imagine there's probably a lot more of those than there are criminal cases because the the bar is lower. Preponderance versus is, I mean in in criminal cases you have a much higher bar of proving somebody actually did a thing. You have to show intent, you have to show opportunity, you have to show all those, you know. Yeah, and and if the prosecution is going to ask to seize your assets after you've been convicted, okay? You're talking about the sentencing part of a criminal trial. Right. Okay. Again, the prosecutor is going to have to demonstrate before a judge or a jury that the assets, okay, were a part of the criminal enterprise. Were ill-gotten gains. Gains, right? In civil forfeiture, okay, the government (laughs) government doesn't have to show that. All the government has to show a we d- found the Cuban coffee on the boat. The boat. Okay. The boat is guilty. The boat is guilty. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, and that's the great thing as far as the government is concerned in regards to civil forfeiture, right? Is that you're not suing the person, and thus the standard of evidence is not beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. Because you're not depriving the boat of freedom. That's right. Okay. Doesn't have freedom. Have freedom. Doesn't have. Whereas the reason criminal cases are, I think, held to a higher standard, standard. is because you're depriving an individual of their freedom. That's right. If they are found guilty, they will go to jail. Probably. That's right. Yes. And if they do, you've now removed their. Whereas if the boat, I mean, you can't remove the boat's freedom. Yeah. It be- doesn't have freedom. Yeah, because beyond a reasonable doubt in a criminal trial flows from the due process clauses of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. The Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments don't apply to assets, right? right? It applies. Assets don't have due process. (laughs) No, right? Okay. They have no equal treatment before the law. The law, right? Okay. (laughs) Now, Nia, can you guess when asset forfeiture arose? In the United States, I am going to bet that it has something to do with prohibition. Ah, yes. Okay. Because that's when we get a lot of the sort of Elliot Ness going after property, because what they were doing was going after barrels of liquor and destroying them. Yes. Yep. For being for being barrels of liquor. Yes. Not for any. They were preventing criminal enterprise by destroying the asset. Yeah, because during Prohibition, Congress passed a law, the Volstead Act, okay? Um, and again, rem- uh, for listeners who, who, uh, who don't know much about Prohibition in the United States, Prohibition did not prohibit you from drinking. Right. It, it, it prevented pro- you from buying alcohol. Oh, it, it, pro- <laughs> it prohibited the manufacturer sale and distribution right okay but if you found it somewhere where you could drink it yeah and of course you know (laughs) in the in the one year before prohibition was added to the constitution and congress got around to passing the volstead act what many americans who liked alcohol did was they went ahead well they, they bought a whole bunch of it and stored it and they right? bought right. And yeah. People are like I have a cellar full of. But you know the Treasury agents, tasked with enforcing the Volstead Act, went after the distribution 
okay, of the booze. Which makes right? sense. Yes. It is the similar, although not exactly the same, but it is similar to prostitution in that people, that, that police often go after the providers of sexual favors mm -hmm. rather than the the payers, consumers the yeah consumers, the consumer yeah that's right yeah of, they often because if you can stop it at the distribution, distribution level, point okay then it, the other end takes care of itself right if there is no one to provide yes whatever this is alcohol sex drugs whatever it is which is why drug dealers are often prosecuted as opposed to drug takers that's right drug consumers right so it was uh, uh, and in particular, okay, uh, the Treasury agents focused on bootleggers, okay, the, the term that was used for those who would manufacture and then would do, you know, sell, uh, you know, sell and distribute, okay, and they targeted things like, okay, automobiles, storage units, boats, okay, etc. Um, and um, uh, and because there was so much violence associated with bootlegging, okay, this was one of those rare times, Nia, in American politics where both sides of the ideological spectrum were fully supportive of the federal government using asset forfeiture. Liberals didn't like the violence associated with bootlegging in their communities. And conservatives wanted to hit criminals where, for conservatives, it would hurt the most. Which is assets. So they're assets, Money. right? Right. You know, because like, you know, good conservative property owners, okay, well, if you took my property, that would hurt me. Well, if we really want to go and hurt the bootlegger, okay, we take their property, right? Okay. So... Um, uh, and, and this is a huge program, Nia, right? Um, uh, I, I mentioned this to Nia off recording. Uh, the Department of Justice has like a separate unit of its website designed to its uh, asset forfeiture program. Um, and it's referred to as, of course, since it's the federal government, there's an acronym. It is the AFP, the Asset Forfeiture Program, right? Um, and I and I love the, the the mission, right? To use asset forfeiture as a tool in order to deter, disrupt, and dismantle criminal enterprises by depriving criminals of their instruments of illicit activity. Okay. Yeah, good luck distributing those guns without a car. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, now you got to go on foot, or you've got to go on a little scooter. Yeah, and that means that means it's going to cut the amount of guns you can carry. If you're going on a scooter, <laughs> yeah. you can now only carry what you can carry on your back, right? That's you can right. Carry a a you know truck full or a Hummer full. Uh, I of mean, guns hey, or grenades or whatever it is. But I mean, it, it, but if you got a panel truck, okay, you can carry you a, lot. a lot of a lot more guns, right? Same with, I mean, easier to visualize alcohol. Alcohol. There's only so many bottles of alcohol you can put in your backpack if you're on a scooter. <laughs> That's right. Whereas if I pull up in a in a you know big old passenger van, 
Oh, I hey. get a whole bunch of bottles of alcohol. Well, and you know, and then and then think about drugs, right? I mean, right. like trunks were almost. <laughs> if you think about it, trunks are almost like the ideal size, okay, for shipping, okay, modest of, of yeah, kilos of couple of, couple of kilos of coke, of coke, okay, or multiple kilos of grass, okay. I mean, if you think about it, you know, you package it right. You can get quite a bit of, you know, marijuana in a modestly sized trunk. Right. Okay. Yeah, you don't even have to have one yes. of those big cars from the fifties, like an Impala. Yeah. So basically, and here's the the fascinating thing about uh, the AFP, the uh, Asset Forfeiture Program, right? Um, because it was funded. And, and we're going to go ahead and post uh, uh, the law uh, on the research guide. Um, the program was significantly expanded in the 1980s uh, with the Comprehensive Crime Control Act, right? Um, and this is where Congress allocated a specific, if you will, line item, okay, to fund the program. So Congress gives the Department of Justice money to do this. But this is a program that generates huge amounts of money for the federal government. And by law, the federal government then gets to share it with state and local law enforcement that assist them. So there are financial incentives for the government. And we're going to discuss this because that's a, that's a, huge point of contention with this program right yes that, Augie, Augie's saying that to you because he can see in my face that i'm getting ready to to say yes. no no uh, uh, okay nia's face uh, listeners nia's face scrunched up and she started bi biting her lower lip right <laughs> <laughs> right okay um but and this is the fat one of the more fascinating things about this program is Congress specifically allows AFP to share its bounty with state and local law enforcement, right? Thus encouraging all of those agents to work together. together. That's right. Okay. Right. Otherwise you get, Augie has referred to in this podcast on many, on many occasions, the territorialness of agencies oh. and of, at various levels. And that it is a, that it is a, often a complicating factor in crime prevention and or resolution in other things as well. Housing, we have a huge problem with housing in the United States because the federal and the state and the local levels often have trouble working together. Yeah, so I mean, this it, it, was it, one it, of those efforts to try to, to try to get cooperation and collaboration across those. Yeah. Across I mean, those institutions. I mean, Nina, you make an excellent point here. Okay. Because some public policy problems in this country, we have allocated billions of dollars and in some instances have made little to no improvement. Right. How's that war on poverty going? Okay. But I mean, I'm just saying. Yeah. In, because in those agencies sometimes work at contra. Yeah. They, they run counter. Right, yeah. Run okay. Counter. They run counter. Okay. But this is a program where facilitation across turf is it's encouraged right. 
right? Yes, right, is is beneficial, right? Um, so those and are the, the concept. Augie and I do not argue with the concept mm -hmm. of of depriving criminals of the stuff that helps them be criminals. Yes. We are we are both not unhappy about this idea of well, you don't get to just keep stuff with your ill-gotten get like if you seriously, if you engage in oh, I don't know, human trafficking and it allows you to buy a thing, we both believe you should be deprived of that thing in addition to being deprived of your liberty. And in that instance, probably being beaten to death. But neither here nor there. Yeah. Right. But but we believe in that kind of thing. Um and there have been some cases where I think you and I could both agree oh, that yeah. was a legitimate outcome of when when you concept when you're talking about for instance financial managers who have ripped off you know working class people their you know their retirement plans okay it's, okay etc etc okay i have absolutely no issue with the government going after okay their assets okay because at at that point as far as i'm concerned you're scum right, right. And, and, you know, and if you ended up buying, you know, a half a dozen mansions because you trafficked in other human beings, okay, or, you know, uh, you were the muscle end of uh, an organized crime organization, okay, and, you know, you were murdering people and killing people and assaulting people, okay, and you got paid handsomely for your criminal activity, okay, and you're found guilty, and the feds or state government says, yeah, we want your three houses, okay, and we want your, you know, nice plane that you, you know, use to jet off to the Bahamas, et cetera, et cetera. I have no problem with that. I have no problem with that, all right? Um, but this is a difficult constitutional and legal issue, and this is the last thing I think we should address in this episode and we can use it as a segue to the next one. And that is the Supreme Court, at least initially, gave approval to these programs, right? Occasionally they did not, right? And in 1965, the Supreme Court said that the uh, Pennsylvania government, okay, seizing a vehicle um, that was used by a different family member and you didn't know that the other family member was using it for criminal activity, that was probably unconstitutional. Please tell right? us the name of that case. Oh yeah, this is one nineteen fifty-eight Plymouth Sedan versus Pennsylvania. <laughs> and again, the reason I know why it's not funny, but it's funny to me. One nineteen fifty-eight Plymouth Sedan. And again, this was a civil forfeiture case. Right. Remember so, that they're suing the sedan. Yeah, they're suing. His so name appears. Yes. As okay. a defendant in this case. Okay. Right. Which I just think is hilarious. Okay. Um, there were a whole bunch of cases, Nia, um, in um, the first decade, decade and a half of this millennium, concerning <laughs> banks. Yeah, banks seem to be especially bad for this sort of thing. Yeah, because what had happened was at the tail end of the Bush 43 administration, so you're talking about 2008, and segueing into the first 
few years of the Obama administration, there were a whole bunch of investigative reports about how criminal organizations, you know, as far back as the Nazis, okay, used foreign banks, okay, to hide their, you know, their financial proceeds, right? right? And eventually, a number of Western governments, including the United States, okay, started targeting the banks, right? So in 2009, uh, the Lloyds Bank had to forfeit $350 million, okay, uh, for violating a federal statute. I And I love the acronym because I, 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 there are court cases in my common law class where I get to use the acronym. The name of the law is International Emergency Economic Powers Act. AIPA. 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 Okay. <laughs> Almost feels like you need to do a Caribbean dance to it. AIPA. Pretty cool. Yes. Right. Um, Falsified so, outgoing wire transfers to persons on U.S. sanctions, sanctions list. list. Yes. Okay. Uh, Mr. Bin Laden, we have your money. <laughs> yeah. Right, I mean that's he. He would have been one of the people. On that list, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. like that, where they lied about who they were sending the money to. That's right. And okay. that's a weird thing for the bank because the bank promises you privacy, so that you'll bank with them. But then when they lie to the federal government about who they're sending money to, they ah. get in trouble with the with the with the feds. The law, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. And this happened not only with the Lloyds Bank, but um, credit. I always mispronounce that word. Is Suisse. It, yes. Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse. The Barclays Bank. Uh, the ABN AMRO Bank. Okay. So these are not small institutions. Oh, no. And these were huge amounts of money. $350 million with Lloyds. $536 million. $298 million. Five hundred million. Yeah, but in a bank. Yeah. Is that money? No. I mean, it's I mean, money to me and you because we'll never have five hundred no. million. No. Unless yeah. we rob a bank, we're never going to have. Yeah, that yeah but but I mean, for the banks, it's just you know you know creeping decimals. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I love that phrase. Okay. Um, Although I I was fascinated by one of your cases, which I would like to mention. Yeah, go ahead. If you don't mind terribly. And that is the state of Texas seized the YFZ Ranch, a one-time fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints FLDS community that housed as many as 700 people when it was raided by Texas in 2008. Yes. So, and I suspect that what the criminal conduct there was, was underage marriage. Yes. That was probably part of it. And part of it was probably multiple marriage, right? Yes. Bigamy, yep. which, is, yep. which is illegal in the United States. Yes. Um, because the FDL, FDLS church, which, by the way, is not the same as the Mormon church. The, That's right. Um, the F, excuse me. The LDS church is not the same as the FDLDS church because the LDS church outlawed um, multiple marriage. It, frankly, in order to get Utah statehood, but that's neither here nor there because it is outlawed within that church. But the break-off branch, 
was the fundamentalist sect. It was the fundamentalist yeah. sect, yeah. and they continued to practice that. And I'm assuming that Texas was like, you know what? That's illegal. And you know what? You doing on a compound means that the compound is now ours. That's right. Yep. Uh, the last case I want to mention, and Nia, I think the last case is the appropriate segue to our next episode. Uh, this was a Supreme Court case uh, from 2019, uh, Tim's versus Indiana. For the first time, the United States Supreme Court, okay, uh, uh, held um, that um, the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on excessive fines is applicable to the states, which then makes state asset forfeiture programs possible to be sued as unconstitutional if they're excessive if it's excessive okay okay so but this I is think the, the facts of this case would actually make it make sense to people yeah Can you tell us the facts of the case indiana seized the uh, uh tim's truck because the cops found a small quantity of drugs okay and um, uh, in the in the truck, and he was convicted of a non-felony possession charge. So let us stop for a moment there and say, I don't know what the street value of drugs is these days because I'm way out of that scene. Yeah, we both um, are. Yep. But let us just even pretend that it was a thousand dollars worth of drugs, which it probably was not since it's a small quantity and a non-felony possession. So it's probably much smaller than that. Yeah, that's but right. let's even say it was a thousand. If his truck was worth forty five thousand and that I mean, was basically that was, that's what they're that getting at, right? Is that it's too heavy of a, a punishment. A punishment for the for the crime because Indiana prosecutors argued Okay, that because he had drugs in the truck, that the okay, truck could be seized. Okay, the truck could be seized because either he transported, okay, his drugs, which, by the way, there was no evidence he was a quote unquote drug dealer. He just occasionally liked to go ahead and use drugs, okay, in small amounts. In small amounts, okay, but they said. Either the drugs were transported in his truck, or he occasionally used illegal drugs in his truck. Either way, okay, it was, okay, an asset that was the location or used to facilitate an illegal activity. Now, Tim's argued, I have a small amount of drugs, and I'm convicted. But you want to take my truck that was valued at, I think it was well over $40,000. He goes. Which is also my way to work. Work. It's my, I mean, like. Yes. And he, and he was right, just like. It's going to deprive me of other things besides, besides just that. the truck. And because the state could never show that he was a dealer, they couldn't go ahead and say that the truck was the result of proceeds of drug dealing. Right? I see. So, you know, Tim's claim so it was, was it was too much. It was too yeah. much punishment for the crime. Yeah. 
Augie, we've caught you jaywalking and your ticket fine is $9,000. <laughs> and you'd be like, excuse me? <laughs> excuse me? I'm not paying a $9,000 fine for jaywalking. I will pay a $100 fine for jaywalking, right? Like, or, or, or if the, it, it's uh, ridiculous. Or, or if a, I can a pro- see where his argument is there. Or, or if a court says, Augie, you were uh, found guilty of jaywalking. So we now want your uh, $120 uh, leather shoes that you just purchased. <laughs> okay, that's more accurate. Okay. Right, um, and you're like, uh, well, I don't what? think so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, no cars were coming. The light had just changed. But you want my nice leather shoes? Right. Okay. So, so I think, that's a great – you're right. That's a great segue because it said, takes us to the things that are wrong with or, this Yeah, the critiques. Program. Okay, and by the way, um, 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 a trailer uh, alert, okay, or, you know, uh, spoiler. A, spoiler alert, uh, but a little bit of a trailer, a little bit of foreshadowing. Our next episode, when we talk about the critiques, okay, these critiques cross the ideological spectrum, folks, Right. right. Okay. It's civil discourse in the sense that everybody hates Yeah, right. Because as I began to do research, I was just like, whoa, whoa, wow, wow. Ooh, hey, never thought of them, right? But anyways, uh, Nia, uh, thanks. That's awesome. Thank you, Augie. Yep. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.